Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. The scripture reading for today is from Exodus 16 and Exodus 17. Our goal in the scripture reading is to see how the children of Israel responded in the wilderness, how they failed to trust that God would provide for them, and so grumbled and murmured as they lacked food in Exodus 16 and water in Exodus 17. Even after the most immediate uh, understanding of God's deliverance in Exodus 14 and 15, they still stumble in Exodus 16, and even after the provision of Exodus 16, they still doubt his provision in Exodus 17. And they do not say that God will provide for their needs when they need it. Rather, they want to see provision for their needs now, for any possible needs they can have. So at any rate, here is what is said in Exodus 16, verse 1. And they, being the children of Israel, took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning then ye shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be, when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And as they go, they end up finding out that they try to keep manna overnight, and then they don't make adequate provision for the Sabbath. They don't show that they trust God's provision super well. And it is even more clear when just in the next chapter, they test God rather than God testing them. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, then says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did shide with Moses and said, Give us water, that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses 
and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of the people of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, good morning again. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be finishing Matthew chapter 3 and going into Matthew 4 today. Matthew is showing us the preparation of Jesus for his ministry. Starts with something that doesn't even include him, but is John the Baptist proclaiming that his kingdom is coming. The king, the Davidic king, the long-awaited son of God, Messiah, has been born. God has preserved him. Now John the Baptist has prepared the way for him, paving every road with repentance. So now the king himself comes, starts acting, starts being an actor within the narrative. And it begins like this, Matthew 3, 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Father, please help us at this time as we work through Matthew 3 into Matthew 4. And think about these stages of preparations for Jesus himself to announce the nearness of his kingdom. Ask that you would help us to see the beauty of what Jesus is doing. And as we rejoice in his actions, let us imitate them. But let us not jump to imitation without first exulting in them and worshiping you and you, O oh Son, for what has been done and what you are still doing in this world. As your spirit is already among us, we ask that he would come to impress these truths upon us and to help us to, to live them out, to believe them, and to glory in them. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. In life, there are certain times in which we start to worry about what provision there's going to be for tomorrow. We may be okay with knowing this is going to happen today and there's not going to be any direct problem, but what about five years from now? What's the plan then? 
what's the plan five days from now? And do we have the grace we need for it? Do we have the provisions for it? And planning in that way is appropriate. Part of what we've learned in the scripture reading, part of what Israel struggled with was wanting to have God provide for them over a long period, grabbing the manna and then being concerned when they didn't have water, not trusting God to provide for them when they needed it. Would we do the same? And in many ways, Matthew 4, 1 through 11 asks that question of Jesus. Will he trust his father for the provision that he needs in the moment or ask for it all at one time? But as the whole passage of Matthew 3, 13 through 4, 11 shows us, as God's son, Jesus is willing to submit trustingly to the suffering of the servant king. Matthew develops this with two interconnected discussions of Jesus preparing for his ministry. Two scenes. The first scene is Jesus' baptism. Verses 13 through 17, which reads this. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus, answering, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 1-12. John becomes to prepare the way for Jesus. Verse 3 says this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that there will be a voice of one crying in the world, prepare ye the way of the Lord. But the way that he prepares is by repentance, by calling, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And indeed his baptism is a baptism unto repentance. He's baptizing with water in order to demonstrate one's turn from sin, so then verse 13 is a shock. And there's good reason before we even get to verse 14 to agree with John, with John's question. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. If John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, then Jesus doesn't need it. He has nothing to repent from. And so then John tries to forbid him, tries to prevent him, tries to say no. Jesus isn't going to be told no. But we understand his question then 
when he says in verse 14, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus' baptism, verse 11, is not a baptism of repentance per se, but a baptism with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The Holy Ghost comes upon, at first, the apostles as tongues of fire, and then indwells every believer. And that's the baptism John needs from Jesus. So Jesus doesn't need a baptism from John. But, verse 15, And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Jesus says, Let it be so now. At this time, this needs to happen. And why? For in this manner, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now it is possible within the literature of the Bible to take us as referring to a a plural of majesty type idea, a royal we, and thus the us could be referring to Jesus alone. That would be common within the writings of Paul and John. But we are not in the writings of Paul and John. So I think it's actually more likely that the us is supposed to encompass John the Baptist as well. That Jesus and John are both coming here, needing to do in this manner of John baptizing Jesus and Jesus submitting to John's baptism to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill what is required by God at this time and in this moment. Allow it to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. But that then does lead the question, why? Why is this what God would require? Why does Jesus submit to a baptism he doesn't need? Because he has nothing to repent of. We cannot directly answer that question from verse 15. I think what happens at the baptism begins to give us a glimpse of it. So to answer our question, we keep reading. Verses 16 to 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, immediately as he came up from the water, The same spirit that hovers over the water in creation comes and descends like a dove upon Jesus and rests upon him. Stays. Lights upon him. But not only is there Son and Spirit, there's Father as well. Because a voice from heaven, this 
is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's a combination of a couple of texts, but primarily is Isaiah 42. But we should see Psalm 2 first. Psalm 2, at the beginning of the book of the Psalms, is giving this hope of a Davidic king. And these are the words then that, that, that the Father, the Lord, says to that future king. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. It's a prophecy of a glory of a Davidic kingdom. And now the Davidic king is being declared to be the son of God. To be declared, this is my son, the voice from heaven says. And so there's the expectation of the nations coming as his inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth as his possession. That's a wonderful glory and wonderful extent of the kingdom that he would have. But it's combined, and indeed is almost overshadowed, by the promises of Isaiah 42 and the rest of the servant songs. So we turn to Isaiah 42. It is the first of Isaiah's songs describing the servant, culminates in the suffering of the servant in Isaiah 52 to 53. That's where everything is there. The servant is described as one who trusts and submits to suffering. The whole song is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. I think you'll find some similarities to what we've already read in Matthew. As Isaiah prophesies, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set the judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. 
Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So the Lord, speaking to the servant, says that it's the servant whom he upholds, whom the Spirit will be upon, and whom he delights. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. The rest of the servant songs show the suffering. It is a glorious ministry. He is lifted up, that he is lifted up to die. But here in Matthew, as in elsewhere throughout the Bible, the glory of the coming kingdom is irreversibly tied to the willingness to suffer. The Davidic glory of Psalm 2 and 7 and 8 is tied to the servants and servitude and suffering of Isaiah 42 and following. Such that you can never truly have one without the other. And it is that call to suffer that is then called into question in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And it kind of starts giving us the answer to why it would be God's will. That it becometh all righteousness to be baptized, for Jesus to be baptized by John in this way. For one, it's the means that God's going to use to reveal himself Trinitarianly. To say this is the Son, and also to reveal the ministry of the Son, of the Davidic glory combined with the suffering servants. And also, the humble submission to one less than him is characteristic of the servant's service, servanthood that will characterize the rest of Jesus' life. That as he's willing to put himself under John to be baptized by him, he will put himself as the servant of his people, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even that, even the language of Matthew 3.15 is language that is characteristic of the suffering servant. Doing all that the Lord requires, not trying to get out of it, but trusting the one who upholds him by the hand and being willing to suffer as necessary. And so the devil tests him on the basis of whether he really is willing to be the suffering servant whether he's willing to not take his own rights upon himself, but to trust God and obey him. And so Matthew 4, 1 through 11, takes us into our second scene, Jesus' testing. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. 
And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. There are three tests, but before that, we have a background set in verses 1 to 2. The same spirit that comes upon Jesus at his baptism then leads Jesus into the wilderness. Leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. <laughs> Verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And I would expect so. You're fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, drinking only water. You're going to be very hungry. I think the New English translation is correct when they take this and interpret it as famished. He's at his point of absolute weakest. In the wilderness, famished, and that's when the devil comes to him. Adam was in a garden when the devil came to him, surrounded by paradise and luxury. Yes, there was the serpent lurking around, but we can't lose sight of the garden for the serpent. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, this Jesus. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years because they tested the Lord. And now Jesus, at his weakest, has the devil trying to test him as to whether he will truly submit whether he will continue to follow God despite the cost. And the first test is verses 3 to 4. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When we see the devil's command to Jesus in verse 3, his little plea before him, if thou be the Son of God, it's not in question, Matthew three seventeen, the Father himself has declared it to be the case. 
But when we see then him say, command that these stones be made bread, we may be thinking this is a demonstration of his power. We want it to be demonstrated that he has the power to make stones turn into bread, just as in Matthew 3, verse 9, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. But the response that Jesus gives in verse 4 indicates something different. That the question is not so much demonstrating the power, but proper use of that power and authority. Is Jesus going to use his power and authority for self-gratification to get the bread for himself or to continue to be pleasing to the Lord? Verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus' food is to do the will of the one who sent him, as he tells the Samaritan woman in John 4. He doesn't need to use his power to get the bread from the stones now, because he has food of which we do not know. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8 is Moses interpreting the account of the manna in Exodus 16 about the point that it is coming across, that where Israel struggled with the manna to actually follow God for daily provision, things go differently. They don't, shouldn't be doing it in that way. So Moses writes in Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. God gave them their daily bread, their daily manna, in order to demonstrate that there are bigger priorities for them than just where their food is going to come from. That there are bigger things to do than just find the bread, but to actually live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And Jesus knows that. So he's not going to take as his bread something he can make for himself. But trust in the one who, according to Isaiah 42, upholds him by his hand, that he'll have the food when he needs it and can live doing the role of obeying every word that comes from the mouth of God to fulfill all righteousness. The devil's not done, though. 
This is the most important human to ever live. Fully human, fully God. Ready to ransom every man who believes. The devil is going to throw everything he possibly can at him so that the whole plan of God fails. And so he tries again. Then the devil, Matthew 4, 5, taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The devil changes the setting. He takes him into the holy city, that is, Jerusalem. He sets him upon the pinnacle of the temple and this high place and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because it is written. And quoting Psalm 91, and indeed quoting Psalm 91 correctly, it applies to any whose refuge is the Lord, and that certainly applies to the suffering servant Son of God. In fact, it most applies to the suffering servant Son of God. And there is then this promise of protection that he will give his charge, his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus sees through the trap. He's not going to let one biblical text and misinterpret and contradict another. Not to be interpreted in such a way as to be used like this. And so he says, it is written again. It is written in another place. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And on one level, he's correcting Satan for tempting him. But what he's actually doing is saying that if he were to throw himself off, he would be testing the Lord, just as the Israelites did at Massa and Meribah in Exodus 17, interpreted for us by Moses in Deuteronomy 6. There in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is talking to the children of Israel and saying how they should learn from their past errors and how they should trust and serve God alone and trust him to provide without needing to test if he is among them or not. Deuteronomy 6.12 Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Jesus will quote that in a few verses from now. Ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are round about you, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. 
ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers. Israel didn't trust God's provision, so they tested him. Are you really here? Are you really among us? Will you really care for us? And Jesus is saying he's not going to test if the Lord will provide for him. It's not going to test if his father is going to care for him as fathers do and as he knows his father will. He's prepared to trust without testing and to then trustingly submit to the father's will. So the devil tries again. Going back to Matthew 4, he shifts the setting one more time. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The devil is no longer saying, If you are the Son of God. But he's still trying to command and boss around Jesus. And indeed, here, he offers him, a, he offers him the glory of the Davidic kingdom. He offers him the glory of Psalm 2, if he will but change masters. No longer follow the Father who is calling you to suffer. Follow me. Bow to me. And I will give you all that he promises without suffering. As D.A. Carson notes, if Matthew 3.17 irreversibly ties the glory of the Davidic kingdom to the suffering of the servant, the devil here offers a divorce. Get one without the other. I hope for many of you, the jobs that you had or do have were things that you took great joy in, that you were able to do them to the glory of God, enjoying it as his gift. But I also imagine and have from personal experience with prior jobs known that sometimes it's more drudgery than that. The job is painful, but you need to pay the rent. You need to keep the bills up. You need to make sure that you get fed. So you keep working for the paycheck, if for nothing else. And if you are in that situation, if someone then told you you can have the paycheck without having the go through the drudgery of the work, you'd want to take it. And that is what Jesus is here being offered. Take the joy of the kingdom, reign over everything, but don't suffer as a servant. Why continue submitting to your Father who has called you 
to be the servant in whom he is well pleased, the servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. But the Jesus we serve is not a Jesus who is going to abandon his Father's will or to abandon those who would believe in him. He's not one who's going to then say, yes, that's what I'm going to do. But rather to say, I will suffer if that's what God wills. I will be obedient to the Father in all things, and I will give my life as a ransom for many to save all who believe in me. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus says, I will serve God alone, regardless of what he gives to me to do. I will continue to have my food as doing every word that proceedeth out of his mouth. I will suffer for him in obedience, trusting that his hand upholds me. And he tells Satan to go away. After John tries to prevent him from being baptized, and after the devil continues to command or give conditions for obedience, Jesus finally commands someone else. And though he never obeyed the commands given to him, his commands are immediately obeyed, and the devil does leave. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. It is quite possible that the word ministered unto him has a connotation of waiting at tables, connotation of providing food. And if that is the case, then what verse 11 tells us is that now that the devil's and his testing is done and the devil is gone and left, the angels that Jesus wouldn't call to help him in verses 6 to 7 come to give him the food he wouldn't make for himself in verses 3 to 4 before he announces the kingdom in verses 12 to 17 that he would not take a shortcut to in verses 9 to 10. That is a victory chant that Jesus has won this test. He has passed it, and he is willing to continue to obey the Father, submit to his will, and suffer on our account. And that, then, is the first step in what that means for us. He suffers on our account. And so we must recognize and must have the situation of truly having the benefit from his suffering. We must come to the suffering servant. We must come to the one who died to take away the sin of the world, to bear the punishment that I deserved, that you deserved. We must repent, for the king has suffered for us. Turn from our evil ways and trust in him and his death as all that we need and all that we could have for the forgiveness of our sins and entrance into that kingdom he proclaims. But we must also rejoice in who this Jesus is. 
we would have stumbled at these tests of Satan. We would have said, give me the food, give me something to gratify my own needs. I'm not ready to just have the higher priorities of obeying every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We would have wanted the shortcut. But that's not the Jesus we serve. He rejoices to continue to submit, to continue to obey his Father and to fulfill all righteousness, to be the suffering servant. And that is wonderful. But I think Matthew also would like us to imitate that. I think, in reality, we, we typically see Matthew 4, 1 to 11 applied as saying we fight temptation by quoting scripture. And I think if Matthew knew that thousands of sermons were preached on that, he'd be like, that makes sense, that's okay. That, I, I'm a little surprised at first, but I think that's a good way to preach the text. But then I think he would ask, if thousands have been preached on that, how many millions have been preached on imitating the Son's willingness to suffer? The willingness to follow Christ, in de- to follow God in dependence upon his daily provision. Not for needs in the future, but for the needs that come and the grace that comes when we need it. And we may shuffle a bit at that point. We must trust God as Jesus does here. We must respond submitting to God, knowing he takes care of our daily needs, that he gives us our daily bread as we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. And because he provides for our needs, our daily priorities can be met with higher things of serving him and doing everything that he commands. Let us rejoice in Jesus today, and as we rejoice, let us imitate his submission. Let us imitate his trust. Father, please help us do that. Please send your spirit to work that daily trust into our very being and into the fabric of our lives. Help us as we go from here to exult in your word in your work, and in your Son. And I thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria of Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?